This morning we are studying Hebrews 10. And we have a passage here that says in verse 25, well, let's start with verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. So we did verse 24, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now we're at verse 25. Not forsaking our assembling together. So um, we have a parallel construction here, which is very common in Jewish writing and thinking. Notice that here it is an antithetical parallelism. Um, that means the second line is the antithesis of the first. So the first line is not forsaking our assembling together, and then the antithesis, but encouraging one another. So the opposite of forsaking is encouraging. So that gives us a little clue about why we should assemble as Christians, uh, because if we do not, we'll be lacking encouragement that we need. It's really easy to get discouraged when you're on your own. Did you know that? Amen. And if you end up isolated um, and you go through the inevitable troubles and trials of life and the temptations, yes? One thing you think about Elijah. Elijah was a great man of God, a great prophet. He goes, God, I'm the only one left. And God said, no, you're not. There's 7,000. Just the fact that he knew 7,000 other people around some place that think that it yeah, and actually he was asking God to die. Yes, he yeah, he had just had a big victory, and the prophets of Baal were defeated, and God, the fire came down, Elijah was vindicated, and then Jezebel decided to kill him. So he ran off and said, okay, it's enough, Lord, now kill me. And But no, he wasn't the only one. And the Lord had his people... And so we need to find those people that have a heart for the Lord and for the gospel and assemble together with them. And one of the things that happens would be in mutual encouragement. So that's, and also the previous verse, love and good works. Um, is we, we encourage one, one another unto this. Assembling together. Now, the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us the details of what an assembly has to look like. Amen. I think that there's, there's room for some liberty in how that would be depending on the culture, the situation, the place, the circumstances. I got a, the reason I'm thinking about that is I got an email from some guy just ragging on me saying that I was a false teacher because I have the title pastor. And that all pastors are sinful or wrong or off base or whatever. There's no such thing as pastor. Well, it's one. It was, it's somebody who's of this opinion that all leadership in the church is bad of any sort. It, they don't even believe in elders. Basically, there's no leadership whatsoever, and you just have little house fellowships, and there are no leaders, and that's how they see. The New Testament pattern. And you're the shepherd of the sheep. What's wrong with that? Well, that's scriptural. It would be wrong if I was title conscious, which God right. help me if I am. I don't think I am. 
But, but the point is that I wrote back and I said, you're free to have, if you want to assemble in a, in a home church with a few people and not to have anybody call leader, at least assemble, read the scriptures and say the word. But you have no right to judge everybody else who doesn't do it exactly the way you do. Uh, and there's enough in the Bible about elders that would, why would it be a sin to have elders when the Bible says appoint elders? Amen. And elders and pastors really aren't separate if you look in Acts 20 where it says to the Ephesian elders, he said, shepherd, which is the word for pastor, the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Amen. So you have the word for pastor, you have the word for bishop, which is there are no bishops in the Bible, but episkopos, where we get the word episcopal, and you have the word for elder, all in one chapter, all about the same group of people. All right? So I don't believe in this hierarchy either, but my point is, this assembling together, it doesn't say that it has to be in a great big building with thousands of people. It doesn't say um, how many there need to be, where they more than one, <laughs> yeah, two or more gathered together. But the Christians would gather however they're able to with what resources they have and what situation. They may be in a persecuted country where they have to do so underground because they're hated and killed by the government. They may be in a country like ours where we're very free to have a facility to gather in and uh, do so publicly or even out on the street, which we do sometimes. So praise God for liberty in this matter. But what we're not at liberty to do is to forsake fellowship. Amen. That's not a valid Christian liberty. Now, and I've also talked to some people on the Internet who think that that's a good option because they say the churches are all corrupted, so I'm not going to go. And my answer is, well, if you live in a city where every church is corrupted, start a home fellowship right now. Amen. Invite anybody you can find that loves the gospel and start. Amen. Uh, uh, what Pastor Cable said when we had this little thing up in Rock Creek, and he's been a pastor for 50 years, and he started 20-some churches in Wisconsin in the 50s because they didn't have fellowship in these Wisconsin cities because the churches had all gone liberal from the modernists. In the 1920s, in other words, the modernists had taken over the seminaries. They turned out the pastors. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the blood atonement. They didn't believe in the gospel. And so Pastor Cable, when he was a young man, he was ordained in 1951, he'd go into Wisconsin, read a little storefront, put out a sign, gospel preaching Sunday night, because everybody was in church on Sunday somewhere, and he started a church. And by the time he'd gathered, and the, who were coming were people that were in these other churches, but who were, knew what the gospel was and really didn't know the Lord and were starving to death because all they were hearing was this modernism and liberalism. And they'd come and say, oh, Christian fellowship, praise God. And then they'd start evangelistic work. And when he had enough people, they'd ordain the elders and call in a pastor. And he'd go to the next city and do it again. Well, in his case, they had a bath. They had a, he was a Baptist, a conservative Baptist, and they had a seminary in the 50s that was churning out conservative pastors. Now, today, the problem we have today is a lot of the Baptist type seminaries have gone to the therapeutic model 
And it's harder to find pastors, that's true. Interesting, yesterday at the faith on the uh, defiance conference, we were sitting down here eating, and at my table, uh, there's two different families that had that same experience that they're experiencing now. That they, One was up from Osseo, who had a wonderful senior pastor, but he was retiring next year, and the associate pastor is bringing in purpose-driven and and a lot of other things speaking to the church and gutting the uh, core. And then just sitting next to me is another guy who's had the same exact thing was happening. Uh, so they had a church they're assembling, but their assembly itself was being corrupted, and they didn't know what to do. Yeah, that's the number one question that I get by far and away. And same with Jan Markell. Uh, I wanted to say something the Pastor Cable said at that Rock Creek conference we had. He said, we need to bite the bullet. And pray for God to raise up another generation. And we may just have to start over, like I did in 1951, rent a storefront, hang out a shingle, preach the gospel, and see the Lord assemble his flock and start over. He said, because we've lost the leadership in these evangelical churches. Not only the leadership, the pastors, but the seminaries. But God will, if, if we're either going to have the rapture or we need to start over. And we don't have any control over the time of the rapture. So in the meantime, we need to start over. Is part of the problem in the evangelical church that, that they have been um, not big on theology, but just caring and loving and don't talk to me ever about theology? Is that, is that what leads to open to this stuff? Well, yeah, when I, when I mentioned, talk about this therapeutic movement that came in the seminary when I was there, it came in in 1995. The therapeutic Gospel basically is saying they call it recovery, okay. And so they, the basic idea is that people are sick and we're going to help them recover. And if you com- if you combine that with the seeker model, which says that the church is designed to attract, be attractive to the unregenerate mind, uh, you end up with basically what we had back in the 50s in the liberal church. The difference, what's the difference? I'm writing a book about this, by the way. But the difference is this. In the 50s, when I was in the liberal church, I was just a young lad, but when I got old enough to ask questions, I found out they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the blood atonement. All right? So that was just rank liberalism. We don't believe Jesus Christ was really raised from the dead. But we say, why? so why do we have Easter? Well, because it's an inspiring story. All right. Now, what's the difference? To be very fair, I don't think that the leaders of this new paradigm church are going to publicly deny the resurrection. And they may actually believe in it. But what's happened is the doctrines have been privatized. What I mean is that our beliefs are pushed into the back. They're not preached from the pulpit. They're not proclaimed. But they're privatized so that the public persona of the church is appealing to the average saddleback Sam, is what they call him. And, and, so, um, and so I think that privatizing the doctrines maybe isn't as bad as denying them, but in some ways it's still not confessing. Do you, do you understand what I mean by privatized doctrine? I think that this passage itself is talking about 
talking about this is, is don't forsake your own assembling together is, is the habit of some. And they're not just assembling to have a card game or something. They're assembling yeah. around something. And a few verses later it says, anyone who is set aside or not confessing. Yeah. The law of Moses dies without mercy in the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment in verse 29 you think he will deserve who was trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. Yeah. So if you assemble together in a way that that isn't that's set aside or not confessed, mm-hmm. you're guilty of what's being said right here in the same passage. Yeah, as a matter of fact, this might be a good uh, section to use in that in the chapter on redefining the church. Isn't the, what's the definition of the church? How do you believe it? Isn't it the called out ones? Well, which called out of what? <laughs> so exactly. So there, there's no New Testament passage that I know of that sees the church as a general community assemble, assembly. Now, the Bible does anticipate that someone unbeliever might come into a fellowship. First Corinthians 14 does. But it never anticipates the idea that the church itself is a community gathering of whoever may be in the neighborhood. Uh, for example, the term parish. That's an innovation that's not unknown in the Bible. What's a parish? It's a geographical area. And it was invented by the Catholic Church. So, well, I, the parish, in other words, this area, we're the church in this area, and if you live in this area, then you're supposed to belong. Now, in the old days, they forced you in with the sword. With the sword. The Charlemagne version of church growth. Uh, you get to be baptized either in water or your own blood, but at least you got a choice. He's strict, strictly over mine. No, the, the parish is the idea that this geographical area is the church. No, the church is not a geographical area, although certainly churches assemble with people from geographical areas, but the church is consists of the people who are called out of the world through the gospel, they've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and they have a common life together. Fellowship means sharing a common life. So who's assembling together here? Christians. Now, we certainly don't want to make any needless offense. We don't want to offend people. We certainly want to invite them. But when they come, they're coming to a Christian assembly that's based on the gospel. And if the gospel offends them, so be it. Because they're not going to end up becoming a Christian outside of it. If they're, assemb- they're offended because we assemble and we sing about the cross and the blood atonement and we preach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we teach the Word of God, um, then that's a necessary offense. Now, if they're offended because we... Uh, how, what would you do? You could maybe culturally go into a mission field where you bring your culture needlessly and throw that up as a necessary thing to being a Christian. Um, they talk about that in missions. Let's see, if, you, if American goes on a mission field, they're going to turn everybody into Americans. That's not necessary. But the gospel can't be changed. It's, cult, it's, no. not, it's not culturally... Um, yeah, I, can't, I don't know what the word is. But the culture doesn't determine the gospel. The gospel stays the gospel. Well, let's, let's agree on that. A church 
uh, is it called out ones assembling together. Now, remember when the writer of Hebrews said this, he just spent five chapters talking about the blood atonement. How central is it? How do we draw near to God? The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our conscience in chapter 9 from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. So we can't leave aside the blood atonement. And the blood atonement will offend people unless, they're, unless it converts them. Amen. Okay? Amen. So, praise God for that. Just preach it. Uh, as is the habit of some. Now, evidently, even in uh, the very first church, there were some who felt that their own personal salvation was all that was necessary and that they needed not bother with other Christians. Besides, I can understand, other Christians are annoying. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> I mean, not me, but there's some of us. And uh, it's certainly more work to deal with people than to not deal with them, but it's a necessary thing, yes. So, in other words, you can see what's wrong with everybody, but you haven't found anything that you're willing to support. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, I notice if you look at the websites and authors and stuff out there, there are only two or three that are pastors. Because I think it's kind of a, it's, it's costly. Uh, but Gary Gilley is a good example, though, in Illinois. If you haven't, if you don't know, he's a wonderful pastor, and I got a nice email from him. A couple days ago, just encouraging a couple sentences. Gary Gilley, John MacArthur, but there's just a few. But I, yeah, you're right. I think we need to be careful that we're not just negative and critical. And what is our own message that we're willing to corporately embrace and live out? And are we willing to live it out in a way that people can see who we are, what we're doing, and whether there's really any fruit there? Amen. It's real easy to appear spiritual in a closet. Amen. So I agree that we shouldn't do that. I see uh, the church is it's very simple. The harvest is great and the labors are few. Like Friday, I was blessed. All right, two little ladies that went to their rooms, 100, over 100 years old. First of all, they can't go to church. They can't fellowship. The Lutheran minister that morning was preaching that you're uh, saved through water baptism. We'll let that go. Had service. <laughs> so uh, I go to the rooms and I hold church where two or more are gathered. I sit in her little room. She's 100, Frida. And talk to her about Jesus Christ. We have fellowship. God says your religion is pure if you care about the widows and the orphans. Well, how undefiled can that be? But to sit in a little room, you're a tent maker like Paul. You have the gospel. It's very simple. You hold church. You go. Gospel says go and tell. Also go and be with them with love. Sit there and fellowship. Tell her about Jesus. Have a little fellowship. The next little lady, 101, had a little fellowship. A little man that was down to you says, come and see me. The pastor was preaching on that. You ask and you receive, and I mean, the pastor's alongside me, and I says, he asked him to go into his room right now because he said he was confirmed, a devout Lutheran. And we sat down, he's 95, and I wanted to know what he confirmed, but I held church with him at work. I'm in the factory. A little bit of time I have with different people, there's not that many born again, they don't maybe. He, this one black gentleman left his church, he can't find a preacher. So we held church for a few minutes, you know, they... These people say you can't do. They talk about the at the water fountain, about sports, about business, about the stock market. So don't tell me what goes on in, and on the email and on the computers. Industry knows there's hours spent there. People doing stuff they're not supposed to do. So I throw a few minutes out for God because He owns His company anyway. 
And God's in the, in the, so you got fellowship there. So go and tell. It's very simple. Don't be discouraged. You hold church out there wherever, on the street, with that little lady, because they can't come. They can't leave the little church. I mean, it's a, the harvest is huge. So you got 2,000 of these, I don't even want to say, down there listening to Saddleback, whatever they got. I tell you, we got a ministry, and we got a harvest, and God's not a liar, and we're the church, we're the ministers, and we can go out there and do what God's called us to do, like the Apostle Paul. And it's huge. All these little yeah. nursing homes, all the jails. And the last thing I'm going to say, I just give a little card to a lady at work. And her daughter's in jail, 20-some years old, prison for uh, meth now. Her life's almost destroyed. But you know the Word of God. Everybody thinks it's the Word of God. It's not going to do nothing. That little track, that little booklet, you know, they look down on it. Well, I don't feel that way. She gave her the little booklet. She called in and asked for literature. And now she's asking for that literature in the Lord. Asked Christ to save her in prison and wants her boyfriend, whatever, with the son, illegitimate son, to have to read to him every day. I tell you, the church is alive. The church is well. And we are ministers of the gospel. And go get it. In Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we are. We Amen. get so discouraged. No, we don't. Everywhere. We don't. We don't have to be discouraged. No. The gospel. In fact, I'm going to preach on that, Dan. Because they got two thousand, yeah. ten thousand. You know what? Noah's day, they had a couple billion over on the other side, and Noah had an eight. <laughs> Noah had eight. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, not forsaking our assembly together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Now, notice the last phrase, all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is the day that's drawing near? The day of the Lord. What happens on the day of the Lord? <laughs> Judgment. The day of the Lord. Remember the book of Joel? They were, they were saying, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And Joel says, yes, the day of the Lord is coming, but it's bad for you because you aren't right with God. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment, so you better repent before it comes. So as we are seeing the day of the Lord draw near, how much more do we need one another to encourage one another, to pray for one another, and to, uh, to the, the, the concept of ministry is service in the New Testament, and we are to serve not only one another, but those who are in need that we can reach. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send forth his laborers. Amen? Amen. All right, here's some passages. Let's get the back row involved. Mike, are you good to go? All right. Matthew 18.20. And I'm sorry, I'm going to need some name help. Dwayne? Floyd. Floyd, I'm sorry. Uh, Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42. And Jerry? Uh, Acts 27, Acts 20 and verse 7, I mean. And uh, Tim, 1 Corinthians 11, 17, 18, and 20. <laughs> I know, life's hard when you've got to work so hard. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 11, 17, 18, and 20. And then Mary, one th- on a break. Okay, no problem. Who wants to do one? Steve? Uh, You're sure? All right, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Okay. Okay, uh, Matthew 18 and verse 20.
All right, we mentioned that earlier. Christ is there. That's a good verse. I was fishing with a friend here a couple of years ago who was an elder in a church south of the cities. And he was saying they had this huge up, upheaval in their church. And I said, well, what happened? Well, he said that uh, the intercessory group got a revelation from God that Jesus was standing out in the parking lot and not coming into the building. And so they had had meeting after meeting trying to figure out what to do with Jesus in the parking lot. He wasn't 700 foot tall. Well, it wasn't 700 foot tall, no. Anyhow, uh, and they called some prophet from God. And he, he, no, this prophet had come and preached, and, and he didn't know why Jesus was in the parking lot. So finally, I said, well, why don't you just go to Scripture? And he said, well, which one do you mean? And there's one that Mike just read. If two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of, of you. So the question we need to ask is, do we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? Do we believe the Gospel? And are we gathered in His name? And if we are, then we know He's not all stuck in the parking lot. You don't, you don't, you don't need a prophet. <laughs> and so he goes, oh, that's a good idea. I'll go try that. I don't know what happened, whether they got through to him. Um, Acts 2.42 They've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, which probably means communion, and prayer. We preach on that a lot around here. means of grace. Acts, yes, Diane. Okay, the, the question was, uh, what, what would we understand this Acts 2.42 being referred to the apostles' teaching. Well, then, it was what they'd received orally directly from the apostles. They were part of the group there. Yeah, right. They were a part. Peter was the one who had preached. They assembled after they heard Peter's preaching. And the apostles had been trained by Jesus. This is a little bit later in Acts. They'd been with Jesus, right? They'd been three years trained. So it's basically our, what ended up becoming our New Testament. But at the time, it was just oral not written. But the apostles were still alive and with them. So, what were they teaching? Well, they were teaching, remember the Great Commission? Jesus said, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. So, Peter, what he had heard from Jesus Christ himself, that Jesus had commanded, taught these people, and they assembled around that teaching. So, it would be the teachings of Jesus. Was, you believe came from Mark was traveling with Peter, and it was came from Peter. Yeah. 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 Letters being written and circulated. See, when Paul wrote his letters, for example, they were circulated amongst the churches. But um, there's, didn't, there, there's a continuity there, Larry, because we have the actual physical presence of the apostles teaching people. Paul told Timothy, the things you've heard from me give the faithful witnesses that they might teach others. So that would be oral. We had circulated actual letters that were there 
in the first century. By the time of the death of the apostles, some of the very first extant writings that we have, I think the, the earliest one would be this uh, letter from Clement of Rome in like 105 or thereabouts, anywhere between 95 and 105, he cites Paul's writings as scripture already. The very early uh, Polycarp's letter to the Ephesians, full of gospels, and that was in like 140 or 130. So these teachings were always there with the church and being circulated, quoted, written about, but then eventually they were canonized. Uh, but by the time of the settling on the canon, the, the documents were already circulated and quoted. So the apostles' teaching was always with the church. Amen. Okay. In Thessalonians 2, uh, as Paul writing, this is his first, you know, one of the early epistles that yes. Paul wrote. He goes, so brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So if you're yeah, good that, point. We don't hear Paul talking to us that he's dead. They actually heard him talking to him, and we have the same letters they did. Yeah, that's it. Well, I mean, it's interesting because when you say tradition, it makes me think of the traditions of things that came up like in the Catholic Church. So, I mean, because that's, that's an open ended type of thing. Well, these are traditions Paul thought. Yeah. Well, Paul thought, but see, there's, there's other than. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good distinction, Larry. For us, we believe. The ones that end everything that ended up in the scripture would be what Paul taught or the other apostles that's authoritative. Other traditions that came up later are not apostolic. Okay, because we don't believe in a succession of apostles like the Catholic Church does. Uh, uh, Dean has been patient here. We've got a verse here that might help. Okay. First Corinthians four seventeen says, For this cause I have sent unto you Timothy, who is my beloved son a faithful servant of the Lord who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Yeah, so Timothy had Paul's teaching, and he verbally brought it to the churches. Now, the reason this is important, though, Acts 2.42, um, in my research for this book that I'm working on, um, it was interesting, I'm writing about this purpose-driven movement, in the literature going out from PurposeDriven.com to churches, as far as their resource packs, the verse that they cite is Acts 2.42. They actually cite Acts 2.42 as why you should have a purpose-driven small group. And so your question is important, Larry, because now we've got to decide what is the apostles' teaching. Amen. And who are the apostles? Is the apostles' teaching somebody alive today churning out literature, or is it the apostles' teaching from the Scriptures? So I would say you could have a small group, but reading some man's philosophy isn't an apostles' teaching. And and Diana, you're absolutely right, because you can't even get together for prayer. Why? What happens? Well, I know I'm running into this too because I'm in this evangelism group where we have 20 churches committed to evangelizing the inner city and we're one of them. Well, we get to the meetings and you can't agree. They can't agree on what the gospel is. They don't understand the gospel. They can't agree on what prayer is. Oh, we need to have prayer. And then the first thing you do is binding the demons over the city. All right. 
And so, yeah, it's very hard. It's hard to even pray together when people have bad teaching. So if you start with the apostles' teaching, so you understand that, then you'd understand evangelism, and then you'd understand prayer. But the theory that they're espousing is that we have enough unity, then God's going to save all these people in the city. But how are we going to have unity if we can't agree on the gospel? Amen. So I'm having a real problem with it, and I keep going because I believe in the need to evangelize the city. But may God help us understand the gospel. Amen. So we can preach it. Yeah. Jesus himself said, In vain do they teach, teaching the traditions of men. In vain yeah. do they teach yeah, right. traditions, like you said. Yeah, so we need the apostles' teaching. Let's go back to our patient ones over here with these verses. <laughs> Jerry, I hope your finger is still there. <laughs> okay. Uh, Acts 20 and verse 7. Okay, on the first day of the week, so already they are gathering on Sundays, breaking bread, which would be communion. Paul was going to leave, so he taught and he preached until midnight. So see, you don't have anything to complain about. <laughs> I'm very short compared to Paul. <laughs> And then, and somebody was really excited too. He fell asleep and fell off this perch. And <laughs> so, so see, there's precedent for boring people. All right, for people falling asleep in church. I'm not going to feel bad now because they fell asleep on Paul. <laughs> but see, he didn't have PowerPoint. So. <laughs> All right. Let's. Uh, anyhow. What did they have, though? They gathered together on the first day of the week. They broke bread and they had the apostles teaching. Literally, he was teaching them. He was the apostle teaching them. 1 Corinthians 11, 17, 18, and 20. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. Is that what you wanted here? Yeah. Right. Uh, the reason I wanted that is it talks about coming together for wrong reasons. So that, that tells us something. That this assembling together isn't just anybody under the banner of a Christian who happened to be together. There's parameters in the New Testament that makes it valid. Now, in their case, it was supposed to be the Lord's Supper. But what was it? Remember 1 Corinthians 11? They had a big party and the rich people were making, saying, look at, look at me, look at the, all the food and wine and I'm rich, I got all this great food and the poor people were starving. And, and they were forgetting the Lord's Supper, commemorating the Lord's death until He came. So when they're gathering together under some other basis than the gospel and the finished work of Jesus Christ, Paul rebuked them. That's not valid. So today what we have is the supposed liberty to gather together to have our party. Okay, isn't that what they're saying? Well, what will draw in the neighborhood? I just finished reading this book. It's an unbelievable book that I got from PurposeDriven.com called Transitioning. And it, it tells pastors how to turn their church from a gospel church to something else. Party-driven, yeah. Uh, party driven, yeah. And, 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 it's, and after I read that book, when I had people come to me at, where was I? At a debate or a conference or something. Somebody said, What's going, what happens? What's going to happen? 
And here's what I told them. Here's what you don't know. It's already too late. Because the, this book, if they're following the pattern, the pastor gets the vision. Now, the vision is to make the church exciting for the neighborhood people, whoever they may be. All right? You find out who they are and make it what they need. Um, then he tells the movers and power brokers. Then he tells the movers and shakers. Then he tells the workers. Then he makes sure the whole leadership team, this is all in this book, and the last people that will ever find out about it is the congregation. And by the time it gets to the congregation, this is a done deal. It's been a done deal for a long time. And it will not go back. Because this guy, if you want to, anybody wants to join me in my research, just read this book, Transitioning. I hate to be selling this guy's book. but um, it, Basically, he believes he's on a mission from God. And that he's willing to have everybody in that church leave if necessary to fulfill this mission. And the mission is to, quote, do church for the unchurched. That's the mission. Um, It is very alarming. It's very alarming. So that's why this is an important discussion we're having. What is a valid Christian assembly? What is the apostles' teaching? What is communion? All right. What's it all about? Amen. How can you have Christian communion if you have no teaching on the blood atonement? Amen. How are you going to know how to remember the Lord's Amen. death till He comes if you don't know the significance of it? Amen. It's a problem, Larry. That, go ahead. That was my fault. It wasn't in my notes. But what is it? Is it a good one? Well, that's okay. Okay, that's good. So there's the divisions. Some of them are right, and some are wrong. He's commending that division. Yeah, that's the Mishta. You know, let's go back to the purpose-driven thing. Yeah. We kind of laugh a little bit about it. There's an implication of party or whatever. No, these are really serious people. It's a very moral message. Uh, everybody's going to look like they're really doing something in their little getting together and all all that stuff. It really looks and feels like to them like they're really doing church. Amen. Oh, yeah. I know. I want to make sure that we're not, in a sense, laughing at somebody going out doing something goofy. They're doing some wonderful things in the world. The trouble is, is the gospel's missing. Uh, Yeah. Well, what I mean by party, I'm making an analogy to 1 Corinthians. Now, they don't necessarily do the same thing that Corinthians did, but ultimately it's an assembly for some other reason than the finished work of Christ. Amen. And that's, now it may be a rock concert or it may be a therapeutic, I mean, you may just assemble, and actually they're somewhat flexible because you have to go out and find out what your neighborhood likes, and it may be different from place to place to place. But in some areas, you may have a whole church that's based on 100 small groups, and the small groups are all 12-step groups. But whatever works for your area. Yeah. The issue isn't that it's evil to get together and have both evil to get together and appreciate rock music or evil to get together and have a feast. You can have a feast. You're welcome to have a feast, all the feasts that you want. And in fact, you could have them called Red Cross clubs and have everybody in and give you know food shelves away, that kind of thing, and noble, noble issues. But when you call a Red Cross club a church, it's a big 
suspicious that saying I am this But you really are but I'm not. I can I can give money away and say God loves you. That's not the gospel. That's not enough, but it's not a sin either. It's a kind thing to give money away to somebody that's that's hungry. But if I fail to share right. the gospel so that eternally they're damned or they go you know, they get to the grave well fed, I'm missing the point. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, Steve, you're very patient. Well, that's long as 5.11. Yeah, that's it. Build one another up. Encourage one another. Build one another up. So we're here to do that. Gathered around the Gospel. Gathered around Christian worship. What is wor- What is worship? Praising the Lord. Bless your Ex- service is worship. Expressing. Yeah, there's Every different. There's di- yeah, there's different. The drink of water is under the Lord. It says under the Lord. It's your very existence. Seven twenty four is worship. You're a vessel created to service. You're God's. Okay, so that's kind of a big term, worship. Is, yeah. Doesn't it say in Romans twelve that present your body as a living sacrifice. sacrifice? That's your spiritual yes. service of yes. worship. Now, there are other words in the Bible for praise, so there's verbalizing our praise of God for who He is. MacArthur had a really excellent point in, in his, his, there's a new book out called Fool's Gold, and he makes a good point that when, when the Word of God is taught clearly so people know the nature of God, part of the teaching that needs to go out is the person and work of Christ and the very nature of the triune God of the Bible. And he said, the better people understand Christian theology, the better their worship will be. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Because, is that true? Proper thing. Yeah, and in spirit and truth. So the better taught we are. I was at a really great funeral service yesterday where I thought the worship was profound. And the reason it was profound was because of solid teaching and solid theology in the words of the songs. So songs ought to be teaching Christian theology. And if people are trained in theology, the worship, rather than being worked up by just the absolute quality of music, I mean, there's nothing wrong with quality music, but the essence of it has to be the truth that we're, of who we're worshiping and why. And so MacArthur, I thought, made an excellent point. If you really believe in worship, then teach theology. Good point. All right, let's go to verse 26. Now the warning. This is the fourth. Which? How many? There's five warnings against apostasy in Hebrews. This is the last one, or is there another one in chapter 12? I'm supposed to know these things. I'm the teacher. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, it's bad to commit apostasy. We're strictly against it. All right, here, here's, here's a warning against apostasy. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a t- certain terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Wow. Wow. Very sobering. Context. 
Why is this verse here after verse 25? Condemned already. Condemned this very day. Today is the day of salvation. If you believe not, he that believeth not is condemned this very day to damnation if he dies in his rejection of the gospel. That's true. But why is this warning to Christians following here? Yes, Dean. I believe it's there to warn, but verse 25 tells us not to forsake the gathering that we are to encourage. And the only reason to encourage someone is because from time to time they get discouraged. And they get discouraged because the world's out to tear us down. Right. We get discouraged because the world's out to tear us down. Everything going on in the world wars against our faith. Amen. The world, the flesh, the devil, the teaching of the world, the philosophy of the world, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, all that is in the world is not from God. And it is wearing on us. And we get a relief from that in the Christian assembly. Amen. We should. Amen. <laughs> we should. Isn't that all the reason why you don't want the church to look like the world? We need a relief. We don't just need another version of what the world's doing. And we get a relief from that, and we get a mitigating influence. The Word of God is a mitigating influence against confusion, against sin, against temptation, against the lies of Satan. And as we are under the teaching of the Word of God, and as we encourage one another, and we read the Scriptures together, and we pray together, and we break bread together, we are being preserved from further sin. Right? And so, if we were to forsake that, we would lose that mitigating influence. And losing that mitigating influence be in danger of what? Going on sinning willfully. Not wanting something to restrain our own sin. Not wanting to come under conviction. Because we're convicted. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Um, Jesus said if the, we're salt and light, but if the salt loses its savor, it's worthless. And so, that's why we need to preserve the integrity of the church and the Christian fellowship and the message of the church and the practice of the church so that this would be happening. So that this mitigating influence, this restraining influence would be true, and that we would hear these warnings. Here's, here's part of the reason the whole counsel of God needs to be preached. Here's why you can't allow the unregenerate mind to determine your message. Amen. What person, if you went out and surveyed the neighborhood, would ask for Hebrews 10.26 to be preached to them? Amen. <laughs> well, what would you think your religious needs are? Well, I want somebody to warn me about hell. As a matter of fact... As a matter of fact, in that book, which book was it? Transitioning or the Purpose Driven Church? I, I, I just read these books again. There was there was something about that. It would actually said your average person isn't concerned about sin, and it says your average person isn't concerned about truth. Is that true? Okay. So therefore, what? <laughs> so therefore, you better find something else to do. No, therefore, preach it anyhow. Yes. Well, there you go. The ad, there's somebody for you to talk to over there. <laughs> <laughs> the atheists know a lot about God. So the gospel. 
Yeah, they, 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 a lot of them are more studied than Christians. If you go onto the atheist website, what's that, infidels.org? I shouldn't be advertising that. On, but anyhow, infidels.org, these people know the Bible and they comb through the Bible to find contradictions and to try to shoot down Christians. Yes. One thing I've learned is that uh, you know, the Word of God is so important. Uh, it's how creation came into being. Uh, Paul says uh, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. At the end of the age when Christ comes, he will destroy his enemies with a word. And I think sometimes we think that God's word is the same as our words. I mean, our words go out all the time. They, they have negative influence, no influence, and sometimes they're helpful, but, but the Word of God is different. There's a, and the reason John calls Christ the living Word is because he is working out what, what has been told to us before this. And, um, and so these words, you know, in this understanding the Spirit of God is in these words. Uh-huh. And, and sometimes we think, well, we, we have the, 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 the Bible here, but it's one of many philosophies. No, this is real truth. This is what will be, Christ said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So there's so, much, uh, there's so much content, there's so much power, there's so much in these words that, that sometimes it's hard to... Um, you know, as a, as a human being, and when you go out and you read newspapers and listen to radio and all this talk and jumble and, and worthless speech, uh, sometimes we lose sight of the fact of all the power that, that is in uh, this book and what God has given to us. And we need to, when we act in faith, we act on these words. Because it says faith is, is the evidence of things not seen. And if you don't see words, I mean, they're, they're, uh, a lot of times they're abstract ideas, but when you, you can hold on to these, like, their substance is harder than cement. You know, Mike, you know what they say, though? What would you say to this? What I heard in seminary, for example, was, Yes, but but a lot of these things aren't relevant to people. Have you heard that relevant? Yes. So, what would you say to that? No, I'd say the older I get, because I came kicking and screaming to to the Lord. I didn't want to come, but the older I get, the more I know. And you know, I I have a few life experiences, and I I see over and over again. Uh, stuff I didn't believe, and now it's evident. It's, it, it, you know, it hits you in the head like a hammer. And all I can say, and my dad was saying, you know, we have we have this word which is called the sword of the spirit, and we don't need to be discouraged. We need to know the power that God has given us. All things are possible. Through him, and and so instead of you know instead of looking at yourself as a you know uh, defeated in the world, look at yourself as a conqueror because your Lord has conquered. Your Lord has brought life 
to those, and like Rob said, who have been called out of the world. Yeah, so, so we need, uh, I would concur, and we need to believe that God's word will accomplish what he said it will. Amen. And the gospel will save those who will be saved. Amen. And, it, it, and it, what if they don't think it's relevant? Well, let me give you an example. If you, if you allow that thinking into the church, why it's fatal. When they do polls and they ask people, most, over 90% think they're going to heaven. Well over 90% think they're going to heaven when they die. Whether they're a Christian or not. So 90% of the people don't think that escaping God's judgment is relevant because they don't believe they're under it. Yes. All right. So off, right off the bat, we go out here June fourth, right out on here in the street, and preach the gospel on the street. June fourth, Saturday. You, Dan, put it on your calendar. We need you out there. Anyhow, we. <laughs> you can assume that if these polls are accurate, that ninety percent of the people, or more, ninety-five percent, whatever the number is, will come. They already think they're going to heaven. Jack Welch, I gotta tell you this, he was on Dan Rather. Jack Welch, one of the biggest CEOs of General Electric, and he said, he said, what's the hardest question, Jack, you have been asked? And Jack Welch says, the hardest question I ever been asked in my life, am I going to heaven? And rather ask him if he is. He says, well, I've been nice to my family. That's all you could come up with. See how sad this world is? The number one CEO at one time in the whole world. He, the hardest question he's ever been asked is, am I going to heaven? At least he didn't have a clue. At least he's thinking about it. Most people think he will, yeah. Back to the verse on it, keep on sinning willfully. Yeah. If we had in the Christian fellowship one that kept on sinning willfully, do we exclude him from Christian fellowship? Yeah, good point. Uh, that's, that's a good point, because in the context of the assembly... See, if you don't, if you're not part of an assembly and you go on sinning willfully, what's going to happen? Nothing, except for in eternity. But if you're in a Christian assembly and you fall into sin, you know, overtly, really bad, what happens? Yeah, and, and if the church is operating biblically, there will be church discipline brought, and somebody will say, "Wait a second, you can't be doing this and be a Christian." And and you'll have to think about it. There may be two or three witnesses, but what's the point? To save the brother. Amen. If you just read Matthew 18, the point is always saving. It's always a, a, a salvific uh, intention. And so bringing people... Uh, so if you lose that influence where somebody is going to say, Bob, you can't live this way, you lose something that's very necessary to keep us from falling. Well, that's why it's so bad to redefine the church. I think that's ultimately going to be the issue is the definition of the church. That After a year and a half of studying this, it's become more clear and more simple in my mind. And it's all about definitions. It's like witnessing to a Mormon. If you don't get the definitions, you've gotten nowhere. They'll say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus Christ is my Savior. A Mormon. So, okay, well, I guess we don't have anything to talk about. Go in peace. No, you got a lot to talk about. Find out their definition. So that's what we're going to be about. This morning we're going to preach on Philippians 3, where Paul says that he counted all else but dung 
that he might win Christ. See, 